0: Now, as you know, ordinarily I take a text and expound the text, but for, um, for this teaching on particular redemption, I'm actually moving us from text to text and from theological thought to theological thought. So we will be doing something a bit different as we pick up the second part of our discussion on the particular nature of the atonement. I'd like to read one verse only in John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 11. <clears throat> verse 11. Let's pray first. Our Father and our God, as we again think about this glorious truth and doctrine, we ask that you will give to us a depth of understanding that enables us to marvel at the grace of God, but also, Heavenly Father, that we can see its applicability in all of life and in various directions in our Christian living that we may see especially the foundation of our very salvation that is laid in what Jesus did when he shed his blood to redeem sinners by his own work on the cross. Hear us as we offer this prayer, asking for the Spirit of God to illumine our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 11. The Lord Jesus says, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd Lays Down His Life for the Sheep. Now let me remind you that I'm doing some teaching on the theme of Particular Redemption. And it is very important that we understand the nature of the substitutionary atonement of Christ for a variety of reasons. But one of those reasons is because substitutionary atonement is once again being denied by churches that should know better, and by preachers that should know better, many of whom have been taught better but who are rejecting these great themes and this great teaching from Holy Scripture. And I believe that the only way in which we can adequately maintain substitutionary atonement is by maintaining the old doctrine of the particular nature of redemption, sometimes called limited atonement, but I think particular redemption the preferable term. Now, let me catch you up and remind you of what we've done thus far. The first thing we did was to say that the foundation for all of this is God's electing grace. That I'm assuming everyone here holds to the electing grace of God that in eternity past, the Father chose his people who would be saved, and he determined out of the mass of humanity that he would save a multitude which no man can number and that he would redeem them through the blood of Jesus Christ. This election was based on no foreseen faith or merit. It was not based upon foreseen faith. It was not based upon foreseen works. It was not based upon anything within the creature whatsoever, but it is altogether based upon the grace of God. Indeed, because we were contemplated as fallen in Adam, there would have been no faith to see, no works to see, but that alone which was the result of electing grace and produced within us by the work of the Holy Spirit. So election is the great theme that underlies what we're talking about when we unpack particular redemption. I'm not going to say more about that except to say that's the first presupposition. The state of the question is really this, for whom did Christ die? Did he die for every individual, simply making salvation possible, in some hypothetical way? Or did he actually achieve redemption for his people? That's the state of the question. As we answered that question, the first thing that we saw was that the holy scriptures speak of the accomplishment of redemption. That there is no scripture indicating that the death of Christ merely made salvation possible, but did not really achieve that for which it was intended. But the scriptures Speak of the Savior who, as the shepherd, redeemed his sheep and is the Savior of his people. Now, I will leave you to listen to the various scripture passages to which we turned and I summarized last time, if you wish to go back and listen to that. But the great presupposition is this, that when the Bible speaks of redemption, he speaks actually of achieving and accomplishing redemption and not simply making it hypothetical hypothetically possible. And so God's design in the cross necessitates the conclusion that the death of Christ was intended for His elect people, and I gave six reasons for that. Let me repeat briefly those six reasons. The first reason is founded in the Trinitarian Council of God. That is to say, the cross was purposed in the Trinitarian Council of God and is determined by the intent of that council and the truths of election and of the covenant of grace which are central to the Trinitarian plan of salvation. To put it another way, the scriptures teach that God the Father chose his people, that in that Trinitarian council it was determined that the Son come into the world and redeem those chosen people, and that the Holy Spirit would apply to the hearts of those chosen people the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Now any other view makes a muddle of the Trinity. You then have a father who chose no one. You then have a son who died for no one in particular. And you also have a Holy Spirit who is incapable of applying the work of Christ to anyone in particular. It's all left to you. The scriptures teach nothing of the sort, but the scriptures teach the Trinitarian counsel of God. And if you read, of course, Ephesians, the first chapter, the entire chapter unpacks this whole idea. In verse 4, 5, 6, you have election, predestination to adoption. In verse 7, redemption through Christ's blood. In verse 14, the sealing of the Holy Spirit. The Father chose a people, the Son died for those people. The Holy Spirit applies that work to the hearts of His people. And so the Trinitarian nature of God and counsel of God necessitates the particular nature of the atonement. But also representation. There we had in mind Romans chapter 5, that just as all who are in Adam are counted guilty, so the all who are in Christ, the last Adam, who has constituted the head of a new humanity, are counted righteous due to his obedience and sacrifice, according to Romans 5:18. And we looked at other passages as well. The third reason that we argued. Necessitates the particular nature of the atonement was simply the nature of substitution. But if you believe the Bible to teach a substitutionary atonement, which is something I think clear on the face of things, despite the denials that are out there today, then a true substitution demands the particular nature of the atonement. You might recall that Jacob and I exchanged hymn books. There was a real substitution, one hymn book for another hymn book. So that Christ gave his life for another life. There is a real substitution, not some vague idea of a substitution. If you happen to to make it effective by your own faith and by your own free will, of course the scriptures teach that we don't have free will. We have bondage of the will and that our wills are are in such bondage that we could never set ourselves free. That's why Christ came and died. So the particular nature of the atonement makes this vicarious nature of the atonement makes the substitutionary nature of the atonement particular. Now, you will recall that I summarized there the argument of John Owen, and let me repeat it to you. If the scriptures teach us that Christ actually accomplished redemption when he came into this world, he actually achieved redemption, then you have three options before you. Those three options are these. Christ either died for all of the sins of all men, or some of the sins of all men, or all of the sins of some men. If he died for all of the sins of all men, then every man will be saved. We know the scriptures don't teach that. If he died for some of the sins of all men, then all men will be lost because there would be some sins for which he didn't atone. The scriptures don't teach that. But if he died for all of the sins of some men, then a definite fixed number infallibly will be saved as a result of Christ's substitutionary atonement, and the scriptures do teach that. The fourth argument for the particular nature of the atonement is the necessity of the justice of God. If Christ is satisfied for divine justice by the sacrifice of himself on the cross, Then the justice of God demands the salvation of those for whom he was a substitute. It's really quite simple but very profound. The application of redemption has been purchased by Jesus. It would be unjust for one for whom Christ died and paid the price if that man paid the price again through his eternal punishment in hell. It would be unjust to the man. The price has been paid and he no longer owes it. And it would be unjust to Christ. The sinner is now his purchased possession. The upshot would be the waste of the blood of the Son of God. Do you realize what a horrible thing it is for a minister of the gospel to say, Christ shed his blood to save everybody, to redeem everybody in some vague sort of way, and yet if you do not trust in Christ, you're going to be in hell forever. Now it's true, if you do not trust in Christ, you will be in hell forever. But Christ purchased for his people the faith with which we believe. And to teach that Christ shed his blood and paid the price. He paid it in full. And then to say to the sinner, you're going to pay that price again in hell is double jeopardy. It is to say the price has been paid, but you have to pay it again. And that is contrary to the justice of God. As a matter of fact, in the closing hymn, that we will be singing together tonight in the backs of your hymnal, this wonderful hymn of Augustus Toplody, that's the point of this third verse that I hope you will pay very strict attention to. This third line, If thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my room, in my stead, endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand First at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. So you see how essential this is for the assurance of faith. Because if Christ paid your debt, you don't owe it anymore. If Christ paid your debt, then you will never be asked to pay that debt. Because it is paid once and for all, and in full. Now the fifth reason for particular redemption, again just mentioning them in passing, is union with Christ. The believer's union with Christ predates creation. According to Ephesians 1.4, we are chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. And then, of course, it is worked out in time so that we believe in Christ and there is a faith union. And as we read about what Christ did on the cross, we read in Romans 6 that the believer died in him and the believer rose in him. Now I ask you the question. Are all in union with Christ? No, all are not in union with Christ. Therefore, the atoning death of Christ was a sacrifice for those who were in union with him in his death and in his resurrection, and them only. And then finally, we argued, again, I'm just giving you the summary. The particular nature of the atonement is also necessitated by the relationship of the atonement and the intercessory work of Christ, When we read in John 10, when we read in the book of Hebrews, when we read in the 8th chapter of the book of Romans in particular, of the intercessory work of Christ, in Romans 8 we are told that the elect and those for whom Christ died and those for whom he intercedes are all identical. Christ does not intercede for every individual. He intercedes for his people. I think most everyone would accede to that principle, as you read the book of Hebrews, he intercedes only for his people. That being the case, according to Romans 8, those for whom he died are those for whom he intercedes, and those for whom he intercedes are those for whom he died. That's in Romans 8, 31 through 34. And so those are the theological reasons that I think are most important as we think through this issue of the particular nature of the atonement. Now, there are objections that are raised, and there are especially certain passages to which men often turn in order to say redemption is general and not particular. Let's look at some of the most important ones. The first is 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, from which I preached a couple of Sundays, two or three Sundays back. In the morning service. In First John 2, we read, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now first of all, there is no reason contextually to think that whole world and every individual without exception are the same thing. The reader must bear in mind the context. John is presenting Christ as the righteous advocate as the only remedy for a defiled conscience. And this same John, who speaks of the definite nature of the atonement in passages such as John 10 and in Revelation 5, 9, here speaks of the whole world. But in 1 John, he's contending with some form of Gnosticism, people who undoubtedly argue that a superior mystical experience raise them above the level of normal Christians. No, there's only one method for a sinner to be received by God, not only for those to whom John wrote, but for sinners everywhere and whoever they may be, the whole world. And the method is the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ. Another passage to which men often turn is 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 1 Timothy chapter 3. Two verses 1 through 6, we read this. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. The text reads that Christ Jesus gave himself a ransom for all men, not meaning every man without exception. Again, in verse 1, Paul urged Timothy to pray for everyone. And then what does he do? He gives an example of a class of men for whom he was to pray, for kings and all those in authority. Now what you're supposed to think from that is there are also other classes of men in society for whom I am intended to pray. And so in the same way in verse 6, we are to understand that Christ has given his life for men of various classes for whom Timothy and other believers are to pray. There's no reason in this text to think that all men means all men without exception, when in the very context he is telling us that, it has, that he has in mind various classes of individuals. Another text to which men often turn is John 3.16, a text that most all of us know and have memorized. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, it is assumed by proponents of universal redemption that this text means that the Son of God died to redeem all men without exception because, again, it has a reference to the whole world or to the world. More specifically, they teach that Christ hoped to redeem sinners and save all, but that his goal can be achieved only if sinners believe, which we have dealt with already. There's no reason to think that world refers to every individual without exception. These observations may apply in some measure to 1 John 2, 1 and 2 as well, which we just looked at. And we must keep in mind texts such as John 10 that speak of Christ dying for his sheep and not for, uh, for his hearers that were not his sheep in John 10, 1 through 30. Now, when Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 8 that the faith of the Romans is being reported in the whole world, did he mean everyone without exception? Did he? Let me repeat that. (laughs) Let's wake up. When Paul wrote in Romans 1.8 that the faith of the Roman believers is being reported in the whole world, did he mean everybody without exception? He certainly did not mean to every individual without exception. You can find the same kind of thing in Colossians 1.6, the same sort of thing in Revelation 13.3. Many places in the Bible in which world is used, and it does not mean, cannot mean, every individual. It is possible that John has nothing more in mind than a reference to humanity as an organism without any reference to the quantity of persons considered at all. The text is not addressing the issue of the extent of the atonement. Warfield points out that in John's writings, the term world often contains an ethical coloration. For example, in 1 John chapter 2, around verse 15, when we are told, love not the world nor the things of the world. It has an ethical coloration. And Warfield, in his classic treatment of the subject, in his great sermon, God's Immeasurable Love, gives us something to contemplate. Warfield begins by observing that universalists look at this text and they say, look at the teeming millions. God loves them all. How great the love of God to embrace them all. But Warfield points out that this is inadequate. This is just totally inadequate because it directs our attention to how many people are in the world rather than to the greatness of the love of God, which is the purpose of the text. Men of deeper insight suggest that John means that God loves the chosen of the world. And indeed, that's a true insight, a correct insight, but it cannot be the whole of the matter. While doing justice to the saving love, they do not do justice to the fullness of the text, to the contrast between God's love and the world. But when we remember that world is often used with this ethical coloration as Warfield says just a synonym of all that is evil, noisome and disgusting, then the text yields its richness for us. We are not to view John 3:16 as a reference to quantity but to quality. The wonder of the atonement is that Christ came into this ugly, noisome Fallen, unholy world to redeem sinners. As Samuel Davies put it in a sermon, Christ redeemed a rebellious province of Jehovah's dominion. And that's a wonderful thought indeed. Well, there's another objection that is sometimes raised, in addition to some typical texts such as these. And that is if we hold to the particular nature of the atonement, then how can we have a free offer of the gospel? Now, I understand the weight of that, and let me say that it works in two directions. There are those Calvinists, and we're Calvinists around here. This is Calvinistic doctrine. I consider that just to be Pauline doctrine, biblical doctrine. But there are those Calvinists who go by the name or sometimes who are called hyper-Calvinists. Now, you have to be careful about that because sometimes just biblical Calvinism is called by people that don't understand Calvinism hyper-Calvinism. So it gets sometimes confusing. Uh, But a hyper-Calvinist, that's just a church historical term for someone who says, I believe election, and because there is election, there can't be a free offer of the gospel. In other words, because of electing grace, then there can't be a free offer of the gospel indiscriminately to all people. That's the hyper-Calvinistic position. But let me point out that it's Arminianism in reverse. The Arminians do the same thing. The Arminians say that since there is a gospel offer, there cannot be election. <laughs> no, it's the same logic in reverse. The Arminian says since there is a gospel offer to everyone that there can't be election. The hyper-Calvinist says since there is election, there can't be a gospel offer. A plague on both your houses. <laughs> Neither is true. Now, I've said that before and got in trouble because someone thought I really wanted them to be plagued, <clears> tonight. <throat> just take it for with a pinch of salt, will you? (laughs) All right. how do we deal then with this idea? Election, Christ died to save his people, we preach the gospel indiscriminately. How do we deal with that? Christ died for his elect alone. Christ did not redeem every man, but redeemed men from among men. Did you ever notice that in Revelation 5-9? He redeemed from among men, not every man, He loved me and gave himself for me, says the Apostle Paul. Salvation is particular. Redemption is particular. So how can there be a free offer of the gospel? Well, I can say an awful lot about that, so let's just say a few things. First, we are to evangelize the lost and present the gospel universally, whether we understand all the reasons or not, because God commands it. And that's enough. If God says, I have an elect people... If God says, Christ died for those elect people, and he says to me as minister of the gospel, you preach that gospel indiscriminately, invite all to come, I don't have to understand how it meshes. I have to obey. So I don't need to understand it all. Just be obedient to what the scriptures teach. Is that illogical? No. The scriptures are not illogical. But there is much in scripture that can only be resolved in the mind of God and not in mine and not in yours. So we are to evangelize the lost and present the gospel universally. Preach it to all men, all people without exception. Because God says so. Isn't that what the Great Commission is all about? The second thing is the highest motive for the free offer of the gospel, its indiscriminate proclamation to the lost as lost, is the glory of God. Sinners are responsible and this is something very important for you to get. Listen, sinners are responsible to return to the God from whom they have departed even though incapable. Now the church is filled with, I'm talking about the evangelical church today, is filled with a kind of Pelagian idea. If God says to someone, believe and repent, then we must have the ability natively to do so. That's Pelagian. It is not Christian, it is not biblical, it is not Augustinian. And it's not true. A man's ability and a man's responsibility, these are distinguishable things. Everyone who has departed from God is responsible to return to the God from whom he has departed even though he is incapable of doing so because he is dead in his trespasses and sins. And so sinners are responsible to return to God. And they may not do so, cannot do so, apart from the quickening work of the Spirit of God. But the offer is a true offer, and it redounds to the justice of God as we consider the awesome reality that the gospel, when it is preached, becomes a savor of life unto life and of death unto death. It's all about God accomplishing his own sovereign purpose, which is far, far beyond my ability to trace out who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. So the gospel as gospel is not offered to the elect as elect, though by virtue of God's decree only the elect will be saved. The preacher of the word is not omniscient. I don't know who is elect and who is not elect. The preacher cannot read the hearts of men. He has no access to the Lamb's book of life. And we who minister God's word are called to preach the gospel knowing that the Spirit of God will enliven his elect and enable them to recognize and receive the good news of salvation. The minister of the word then is to preach the gospel to sinners as sinners. Not knowing who is elect and who is not. That's God's business. See, the atonement of Christ was not intended for every sinner, but the death of Christ lacks no value to save an infinite number of sinners and an infinite number of worlds. The issue is not the sufficiency of the atonement. Now, lest you think I've just invented that, I think there are many, many scriptures to which we could turn, but I just want to remind you that in the canons of Dort, now that's where the so-called five points of Calvinism were drawn up historically, At the Synod of Dort in 1618 and 1619, Dort has this to say. This is Article 3 in the second head of doctrine. The death of the Son of God is the only and most perfect sacrifice and satisfaction for sin and is of infinite worth and value, abundantly sufficient to expiate the sins of the whole world. Article 4, this death is of such infinite value and dignity because of the person who submitted to it was not only really man and perfectly holy, but also the, the only begotten Son of God. And Article 8 says, speaks of the particular nature of the atonement for all those and those only who were from eternity chosen to salvation and given to him by the Father. So, in that great council of the church at the Senate of Dort, there's the recognition that the atonement is particular and at the same time that it is sufficient to save an infinite number of worlds. Indeed, if the atonement were not particular, there would be no gospel to preach. I'm talking about logical consistency. Only if Jesus really by his death saved sinners can there be good news to hold out to sinners in need of grace. If he says, here's a gospel, I, you know, the preacher says Christ died for you and it's kind of up to you whether you do it or not. What good news is that to sinners dead in trespasses and sins? The gospel means that Jesus saves sinners. It is no gospel to hold that Christ gave his life on the cross and secured no salvation by it. The reason that sinners hate the particular nature of the atonement is the very reason that they hate the doctrine of election because it destroys our self-sufficiency. How, then, it needs to be preached. Amazing thing, actually, if you read the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon and, you know, you have your choice. There are, as I recall, 56 volumes of them. Amazing thing. Spurgeon says, I preached this sermon calculated to win men to Christ, and nobody came. I preached election, and all these people came to faith in Christ. Why? Because the Holy Spirit uses that doctrine and related doctrines to destroy the self-sufficiency of the sinner. I can do nothing to save or redeem myself. Nothing to bring myself even into a savable state. When a lost sinner hears that the atonement of Christ is infinitely valuable and sees himself by the Holy Spirit's work to be a sinner worthy of infinite displeasure, the atonement of Christ, and only that, can meet his case. Hugh Martin profoundly observed that the call of the gospel must be universal since it is God's voice within the covenant to those who are outside of the covenant, and I have several pages that I've done on that which I'm going to pass over now. I think that it's important that ministers, Jeff and I, and there may be some other young men here who eventually will be ministers of the word in this congregation, important for all of us as well as we invite sinners to Christ, I think it's important that ministers study good models of the gospel offer. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, all right, strong Calvinist John Newton, John Newton wrote a letter to Reverend Thomas Jones and he said, As for myself, if I was not a Calvinist, I think I should have no more hope of success in preaching to men than to horses or cows. And then at the end of his letter, he writes that in general, I see no preaching made very useful for the gathering of souls where poor sinners are shut out of the discourse. You see what he's saying? I believe in electing grace and I believe that sinners are to be addressed in the preaching of the gospel. Well, I believe that too. You hear it every Sunday. I mean, I don't hide electing grace, do I? I don't hide the sovereignty of God, do I? Is there, is there a Sunday in which I don't say to poor sinners, you need a Savior, come to Jesus? I don't see these things in any way incompatible, and you shouldn't either. And actually, he points men to John Owen and his work on Psalm 130, And I have quote after quote after quote from him that I'm not going to read. But the interesting thing is, John Owen is the author of the great uh, book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, Salus Electorum Sanctus Jesu, if you're Latin around here. uh, Some of you guys, like Michael back there, can correct my pronunciation. But he wrote this great book, Volume 10, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. It is the book on the subject of particular redemption. It's never been answered. Never. And yet, if you go to the works of John Owen, you find constantly his calling sinners to Jesus, his calling sinners to Jesus, his calling sinners to Jesus, and especially on this work on Psalm 130. So I think that's an important thing to mention. Um... For those who say, holding to election and holding to total depravity and holding to particular redemption man, this just kills evangelism frankly shows historical ignorance. George Whitfield crossed the Atlantic Ocean I mean, on a little sailboat, basically, seven times, seven times, from England to America, from America back. Seven times he made that voyage in order to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to men, he had a passion for lost souls. And he was a burning evangelist for Jesus Christ. And he was a thoroughgoing Calvinist who believed every word of what I'm saying here tonight. Jonathan Edwards, another example. By the way, Whitfield, go and read his letter to Wesley, his letter on electing grace. You can find it online. Read it. Read what he has to say about it. On and on and on. Jonathan Edwards, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Calvinist Baptist. Uh, It's just historical ignorance. The greatest evangelists that have ever walked the face of the globe have been men who believe these truths. All right, but now let me just do this. Why is this even important, you say? Well, I pointed out one reason. Let's just make that a freebie, and I'll mention it again. It's because all over the place, these things, I mean substitutionary atonement, is being denied. So that the old governmental theory of the atonement and the moral influence view of the atonement, these are, and the so-called Christus Victor view of the atonement, Maybe I can do a class on theories of the, on the atonement sometime. But these old heresies are becoming the norm in many a pulpit today. And substitutionary atonement is being denied. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you exactly why. Substitutionary atonement is being denied by these men nowadays because it's not politically correct. I mean, all this language about blood and gore and justice... All this language about Christ dying for people, isn't that divine child abuse, they say? I kid you not. What blasphemy. It's the only hope for sinners. The only hope is that Christ died for sinners on the cross. And yet, this is what is being taught in these pulpits today. Well, let me give you these reasons for why particular redemption is important. First, particular redemption glorifies God, glorifies God. Its truth honors God in his electing love and purpose, honors the Son in accomplishing the redemption of God's elect, and honors the Holy Spirit who sovereignly applies redemption to the chosen of the Father. Universal, potential redemption makes a muddle of the Trinitarian plan and especially dishonors the Son by viewing his atonement as a failure since many for whom he died will never receive the forgiveness that he purchased for them. The chief rule in analyzing a theological concept is to ask the question, is this biblical and God-honoring, and does it exalt God or man? The second reason that particular redemption is important is because it destroys self-sufficiency. It places salvation in the hands of God and not man. How then this truth and the galaxy of fundamental truths surrounding it need to be preached? Thirdly, Particular redemption is an essential plank in the theology of the assurance of faith. Now, the doctrine of assurance has, this is a really, really important thing to talk about, and it has, there are many, many essentials to assurance of faith, but this, this really is the basis of it. If Christ paid my debt, I owe it no more. If he accomplished redemption for me, I am redeemed and remain redeemed. Take away particular redemption, take away personal assurance of salvation. The fourth reason that I think it's important is because particular redemption prepares us for a good death, which is my calling to help us to be prepared for a good death. What good is it to know on our deathbed that Jesus died in some indefinite way? Is not the consolation of the gospel for believers in the hour of their death, Jesus died for me. With Paul the apostle to be able to say, He loved me and gave himself for me. There in the hour of death, the believer wants to be able to say assuredly, Christ purchased my soul. And then, looking to the cross to particular redemption, he can say with the words of John Kinnick, "My full receipt may there be viewed, graven with iron pins and blood, in Jesus' hands inside. I'm safe, O death, O law, and sin. You cannot bring me guilty in, for Christ was crucified." You want to be able to say that on your deathbed. Let me say to you, if you want to be able with assurance on your deathbed to know you're going to heaven. Trust in Christ freely offered in the gospel. And when you trust in Him, you can say with confidence, He died for me. And then, lastly, if the atonement of Jesus were not particular, there would be no gospel to present to sinners. Now, I don't mean that some men who don't believe this don't preach the gospel. I think that often they are inconsistent with themselves. I'm talking about real consistency because a gospel that cannot save is no gospel. It's not good news. If it can't break through my sin and depravity and actually redeem me, if it's, well, God casts a vote, the devil casts a vote, I cast the deciding vote, then I'm lost because I have no vote cast. My will is bound in sin. The gospel, however, is Christ came into the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 Salvation is from first to last a sovereign work of grace. And through his atonement, Jesus has accomplished salvation for a multitude which no man can number, having purchased them to God. Revelation 5.9 Having purchased them for God from, from every tribe and language, and people, and nation. Amen.